Theology is oftentimes an adventure in missing the point. Indeed, the image of the theologian conjures, at best, a detached, disinterested spectator on earthly events. But what if a mostly orthodox Christianity had something vital to say to the world around it? What if, in the words of the great black liberation theologian James Cone, theology was really political language? This is Public Theologians. Welcome to another episode of Public Theologians. I'm Casey Hobbs. And before we get started, I want to just throw a quick plug out. If you are interested in supporting the show, the easiest way you can do that is to go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and give us a little review. Let us know what you think about the show. You can also support us. We have a Patreon page. So that is patreon.com forward slash Casey Hobbs. You can join for as little as $3.00 per month, which is less than a dollar an episode. It's a great deal. This week, I'm really excited about the conversation that we are going to have. We have with us Olivia Sonnell, and Olivia is part of a substack uh, that is working class Christianity. I had the pleasure of getting one of my pieces published with Olivia and her comrades over there in the last few weeks. And I am just fascinated by the convergence of working class uh, sort of communism and socialism and all those things together with a deep, deeply felt and deeply practiced Christianity. If you're familiar with the show, hopefully that will come as no surprise to you. So I am super excited. We'll get a little bit of Olivia's background. And without further ado, Olivia, welcome on to Public Theologians. And thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Casey. I'm really excited about this. Yeah. So first of all, just kind of give us a little rundown of working class Christianity, the Substack, what you guys are doing there, and what the overall goal is. Yeah, so Working Class Christianity has been around for about a year. It was founded by uh, two comrades of mine, Chase Tibbs, who runs the podcast Faith and Capital. and Which is a great podcast that folks should check out after they get done listening to this. Absolutely. And uh, another comrade, uh, Chris Ruth. It is currently uh, being run and managed as collectively by myself and Chris. And we... We write for it, and we bring in. We started bringing in guest writers, of which Casey, you got to be one of the our first this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was I uh, really appreciated being able to uh, share your article and your your work with people. It was uh, a really strong piece, and I really appreciated it. Well, thank you. Um, the idea with working class Christianity is distilling the drives and essences behind. Uh, Christianity uh, and the and Jesus's call to be with the poor and sharing that to speak to different aspects of what's going on in our lives today while recognizing that for us we see this commitment most able to be fulfilled through the political work of being a socialist or a communist and so we bring those two lenses together in our writing it is uh, only online right now. We're looking at connecting it to other initiatives, but it's part of a variety of other things that we do on the ground organizing, uh, just different ways of trying to uh, build that beloved community and reach out to different people for the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm guessing, and, and from our brief conversation before we started recording, you have mentioned sort of an evangelical past. Um, I, sh- I share that uh, conservative evangelical past with you. And so I'm curious, 
just in broad strokes, um, is this sort of uh, project something that you had ever envisioned for yourself and kind of how did you come along to this? Uh, so short answer, no. Long answer <laughs> is I, I grew up in Texas in a household that had just left cult shortly before I was born. Mm -hmm. um, they were part of the, my parents were part of the charismatic revival in Texas, which if you were to look that up was horrific. Um, and it, I always imagined being some kind of Christian leader, but I had no idea of what that was going to look like. And it wasn't until I got to college and eventually came out as trans and met my future wife that these things be kind of fall away. And I realized I don't want to be involved in that kind of Christianity. I wanted something more liberating, something that accepted me for who I am. And it did eventually like, through a variety of different reading studies, meeting different people, uh, find my way to, through the help of like an Episcopalian priest, a gay Episcopalian priest, which blew my mind at the time, <laughs> uh, found my way to more uh, commit, socially committed, open forms of Christianity, which through a winding tunnel and maze of things eventually led to uh, me finding the podcast, Faith and Capital, with, and then realizing, oh, the people who were working on this also have a different but connected project. And they were looking for people to come on and join. And I got, that's kind of how I got involved with that. Oh, that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad and, and I feel honored that you shared a bit of your story with us. And thank you. Um, and I'm sure that there's a lot of edges and uh, good times and all of that, um, but I'm glad, <laughs> glad to uh, to just hear that and and um, experience that with you in that moment. So I'm curious too, uh, getting to kind of the work of working class Christianity. So you've been uh, writing several pieces there um, over the last uh, year, as you said. So I'm curious what has been what has been your favorite um, piece that you've been able to, to throw up there? Yeah, just give us kind of a pitch of what you love writing about there. Well, I think what I love writing about it for WCC is that it is, there's always a challenge to it, um, in part because we, uh, we limit ourselves to about a thousand words because uh, we want these to not be super wordy, super long uh, academic essays, but brief uh, accessible pieces of literature. And so like, that's always a, a good challenge was like, how can I say what I wanna say in a, in a short space? Um, but also like there's, like I have, let's say I have an idea, the piece I'm working on right now, which should be coming out shortly, I have an idea that, what does it mean? How do I, what helps me uh, fill this out? Like what places in the Bible are going to fill out my thoughts? What uh, educational or revolutionary theory have I engaged with that's going to enrich what I'm thinking about here? Um, one of the first pieces, I think the first piece I put up was called, I put up was called Jesus and the Oppressed. And it was a revision of an essay I actually wrote for school which originally did not include Jesus, mm. but was written to talk about Jesus's relationship to the idea of liberating the oppressed and why I felt it was important to connect Jesus to that. Though I think the one that has challenged me the most in terms of like the areas where it can be easy to, oh, I got to think about that. And it wasn't, was the piece I wrote for Pride Month last year. Uh, I forget the title of it, but it was, talking about a brief history of the church's, the white Protestant church's relationship to uh, queerness and LGBTQ issues in the United States, uh, the not great track record, uh, talked a little bit about that relationship to police brutality 
and uh, aspects of blackness uh, in part because of the uh, Black Lives Matter uprising that was going on at the time and drawing those parallels. But I, it had to be drawn to my attention that uh, there was a version of the article that acted as if the white Protestant church was the only, was the church in the, the original language of the article, didn't specify what I was talking about, who I was talking about, and I had just written church, the church, throughout the article. And that was like uh, something I needed to catch and correct. And so like those things have been helpful in working for this project, these uh, areas where putting something out for the whole world to see requires you to like, okay, what does this mean? What's gonna come up for people when I say it this way? Why did I say it this way, not this way? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that speaks to the kind of stranglehold that the white evangelical church has on our even perception of Christianity here in the United States. Um, I am speaking to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Um, so the history is very rich with uh, the white church in particular, um, kind of oppressing, um, <laughs> partnering in oppressing uh, other, even other Christians, because it's largely black, white, doesn't matter. Um, it's a very Christian environment in the South. Uh, so yeah, when, there, when you talk about two sides to a, something like a social justice matter, you're talking about two sides of the body of Christ. Um, and you're talking about one side that is holding power on the other side. You and I, in kind of setting up this interview, talked a bit about your, your passion for seeing um, a, a communism and a Christianity kind of uh, working together. Um, of course, that's part of the, the project of working class Christianity um, that, that we keep mentioning. Um, but there's also uh, just a deep strain that especially folks uh, in the white evangelical church in America um, have been very conditioned to be opposed to considering this. So maybe give us, give us your, your first attempt and your first pitch. And knowing that I've hopefully prime the pump over the last several months of this podcast uh, <laughs> that folks won't be completely shocked uh, when they hear your pitch and maybe my response to it. Yeah, so my pitch is, starts with Jesus made me a communist. It was my engagement with the Gospels, the words of Jesus as recorded there, the stories of the early church as recorded in Acts, the writings of James and Paul and other apostles that really challenged me to be like, where can I find a political movement in a political space that embodies the uh, drive to care for the poor that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, and then uh, the woes to the rich, the condemnations of those who are rich and powerful, saying that the it is easier for to get a rope through the eye of a needle, or as more people, people are most used to it, the camel through the eye of a needle, than it is for a rich person to get into heaven. Um, Mary's a song towards the beginning of Luke when she's singing about the coming of her son. She says, the rich are going to be torn down from their thrones. Those who currently are hungry are going to be fed. Those who currently are full are going to be sent away hungry. And those who, and Jesus talks about again in his Sermon on the Plain, those who currently weep are going to have their tears dried. Those who are mourning are going to experience joy. And those who are currently laughing and currently fulfilled by their life are going to experience anguish. And those things really challenged me to look at where do I see this being truthfully 
with conviction pursued in our world. And it coincided with reading the Communist Manifesto, realizing that the word communism was actually coined to talk about the early church's sharing of communal wealth. Um, and I want to say I felt convicted by the Holy Spirit to look at these different socialist and communist movements and recognize that there was a deep, deep desire for the bettering of the conditions for the masses of people in the world, to put a stop to uh, the people, the 1% of people who have the power exploiting and oppressing and domineering and hurting those who make up the majority of the world but don't have control over their resources, over their time, over what they do with their life outside of work. Uh, because you might be able to uh, do something that you want to pursue outside of work conditions, but you're tired, you're hungry, you've got to, now you have to spend time with your family, but what if you really wanted to uh, work on this project? And it, all of these different, this is short, brief ways that people currently can experience aspects of oppression that goes so much deeper. And I felt that connection, those things being tied together. And that's kind of my, my initial thoughts on that. Yeah. And so part of that too, I'm sure is looking back over the now century and a half of communist practice, practice um, in the world and seeing folks like Dorothy Day, um, mm -hmm. folks like uh, Martin Luther King um, yeah. embracing um, explicitly the language of socialism, the language yeah. of uh, a communist ethic. So yeah, tell us a bit about yeah. what that means in your kind so of development. Yeah, it's interesting looking at Dorothy Day and MLK, both of them talked about intersections briefly. They briefly talked about the intersections of like Christianity and communism. MLK gave a speech titled, Can a Christian be a communist? Uh, his answer was no. Um, and initially, so was Dorothy Day's. They both understood communism as being antithetical to religion, antithetical to God and Jesus. Uh, however, they both recognized that communists had a deep desire for a better world. Dorothy Day, the uh, one of the founders of the Catholic worker movement and American Catholic and anarchist said that people become communists because of the goodness of who they are. Um, she thought it was misguided because she didn't want people to be anti-church, uh, but her views did change over time, which is really interesting. Uh, she goes from saying that uh, that communism had a program with the distinct view of tearing down the church to like praying that God bless certain communist leaders and all those who see Christ in the poor. And those things really kind of like challenged me like initially, like MLK thought of communism as a Christian heresy. And I wouldn't say that because anybody can be a communist and you don't have to be a Christian to be a communist. Um, but they felt it necessary to engage with this tension. And they're not the only ones. Dr. James Cohn, who you've uh, brought up on this podcast before, has an essay, Black Christians and Marxism. And that's online. It's also in his book, For My People, where he talks about like the Black church in the United States needs to engage with Marxism uh, to understand the economic and social basis for like how they're going to be able to make the change necessary to end white supremacy in the church. And uh, Cornel West, one of the preeminent uh, black liberation theologians in the US uh, had some very similar things to say uh, around these issues, um, talking, understanding that for very specific reasons, communism has had an anti-religion bent for a while. There's been communist theorists who have been very explicitly anti-religion and others who have been ambivalent towards it. Um, 
But I think you start kind of really engaging with why the under the how some of the early communist thinkers uh, understood religion, what they were talking about when they critiqued it, and what they meant when they said it was a tool to control people. Like, what kind of religion were they looking at? They were looking at religion found in Europe, and that were specifically like Christianity of the aristocracy and the nobility and the way that it like lifted them up. It's a divine right of kings and all of that uh, theological justification for the system as it existed. That was what was being critiqued by those early communist thinkers. And they applied it to the different places where they operated, but very rarely did some of those early folks actually look at like religion that comes from the, that comes up from the ground that the oppressed people live in not religion that they've adopted from oppressors, but has come from their own midst. That religion is where we find liberation and the giving of life. It calls us to engage for a better world rather than telling us to accept the one we have now because it'll be better when we die. Yeah, and I think that is, first of all, I think that's an excellent explanation of uh, what we're, aiming for here in this conversation, particularly um, fascinated with uh, with Dr. West and Dr. Cohn that you brought both of them up because there is a, there's an explicit um, rejection of the totality of Marxism that you'll find mm -hmm. in, in Dr. West's writings. And it's because he says that it is, it's incompatible to have to accept wholeheartedly and what is at heart an atheistic um, praxis as a Christian, mm -hmm. which certainly doesn't exclude Dr. Cornell West from involvement in socialist organizations, um, from being very a very public, publicly outspoken critic of capitalism, perhaps the most uh, famously um, outspoken critic of capitalism that that we have in America today, especially that claims the mantle of Christianity. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I'm I'm always fascinated because that I think that is the perhaps the easiest sort of straw man to throw at this kind mm -hmm. of combined conversation is that um, you know. Karl Marx was an atheist, Engels mm -hmm. was an atheist, all those old guys were atheists and yeah. forgetting their historical place and what they had seen the church do to folks mm -hmm. and and not being able to see, okay, when we when we look at political praxis, when we look at a theory of change, we're not necessarily looking for something that falls down from the sky. In, a, in an entire gift that we can open and implement. Yeah. Am I, do you think that I'm, I'm along the yeah. lines there? I, I, I think, yeah, because everything comes from the, the like historical context that we exist in. Uh, uh, early Judaism in Israel, 5,000 years ago was of its time and place. And Judaism today looks very different than it did then. Christianity emerged out of a specific form of Judaism. It emerged out of a specific form of Judaism at its time, 2,000 years ago, in a specific political context where oppressed Palestinians were uh, living under the heel of the Roman Empire. And that informed their theology, their practice, who was allowed and accepted into their communities. And that continues today. Like, uh, we're not, we're never engaging something that's fully formed. Everything is always in process. Uh, for me, that includes God. God is always in process. This is a process of liberating the world from the chains that humanity has put upon it. Uh, for the full flourishing of all of us, right? And Dr. King, Dr. Cohn, and Dr. West all had like legitimate reasons to be concerned 
with trying to merge Christianity and Marxism. As you said, Marx was an atheist uh, and Lenin, uh, Engels, these, these folks were atheists, yet they did also have a strong appreciation for aspects of religion. And I think, as I said before, part of their investigations were limited. And it, when we look at the religious movements of like, uh, what is called the invisible institution of the black church under slavery, uh, the development of black liberation theology by Dr. Cohn, the amount of priests, Catholic priests in Latin America who became revolutionaries, some of whom quit the church to go join guerrilla groups to fight against dictatorships. Uh, it becomes untenable to say that it is incompatible to engage with socialist praxis from a Christian perspective. And you have to kind of engage with and look at why did some of these early thinkers of communism become atheists? Uh, especially like the uh, one of the founders of German communism was a Christian and wrote a book called The Poor Sinner's Gospel, which was about trying to get Germans to engage with the idea of communism from a Christian perspective. And Marx and Engels uh, referred to him a lot throughout their work. It, it kind of, for me, kind of comes down to this understanding of like, what is uh, the philosophy of communism and what is the philosophy of Christianity? Liberation, it's the basics. Yeah, and even this, this might be a little tangent, but in, yeah. in the Communist Manifesto, there is perhaps not, I had never heard of it until I read it, Um, but there is a conversation about how even the priesthood has become commodified. Uh, Even the the pastoral landscape, maybe in our our current terms, has been, uh, yeah, co-opted by capitalism. And so there is, there's almost this, the critique is not necessarily about religion itself. It's about how religion has been used to, as you said, to entrench those in power, to keep them there and to continue to oppress the poor, which would be the opposite of both communism and Christianity. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned this earlier, this idea of like, there's two looking at the body of Christ realizing that there's kind of like two sides, one that is keeping the other down and keeping it from uh, moving fully, uh, there's two sides. It's more, it's deeper than that, but there, it can be said that there's two sides to every institution, every ideology, uh, everything in some ways, not to say that everything is binary, but that religion can be used to preserve the interests of the 1%. And religion can be used to preserve the interests of the 99% to pursue human flourishing. And those are at odds with each other. They might use some of the same language. You might find people in a white Protestant church in North America uh, walking in after a week of working at their, uh, in their CEO job, uh, calling on the name of Jesus. And then people in a base ecclesial community in Latin America gathering without a priest uh, to talk about their the oppression they experience by the church, by uh, the local government, and how they're going to uh, fight back. And that fight will be inspired by their reading and understanding of the Bible. And like those are two very different relationships to Christianity. I think a large part of the Egyptian, a lot of people comes from like, there's this idea, a popular idea that Christianity is all about uh, pie in the sky religion, Mm -hmm. that it's all about getting to some ideal perfected heaven where there's no more pain and 
we don't have to deal with anything on earth in order to get there. We just have to kind of like live a pious life. And that communism or Marxism is always and only about the economic and social context of the world that we live. And that it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, I did an interview with uh, Chase Tibbs on Faith and Capital where we talked about like uh, the philosophy of Marxism, dialectical materialism. And it's not just about seeing the world as it is. It's understanding that everything is always changing, where our context comes from. And like, I see that as like, God is also always changing. God is part of the world too. And we know that there is more than just the physical world that we exist in. And uh, even Marx and Engels acknowledge that. There's a quote from Marx where he talks about like, their materialist philosophy was about understanding how matter thinks. Hmm. That's deeper than just knowing how these things kind of, how the pages of the book interact or what the social forces are. When you say matter thinks, that's that's almost a spiritual claim. And they might not have uh, thought of it that way, but that's kind of how I see it. That's the beginnings of where I see it. Like there's a lot more to reconcile here than uh, people often think. Yeah. No, that's, I think that's, that's going in a lot of great directions and I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, my wheels are turning. Okay. Where do I go next? Where can we go next in this conversation? Cause that, there is really so much there. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated uh, even by kind of the uh, process theology, theological framing that you, um, that you have there. And maybe I kind of want to push into that because I know this is probably one aspect that for a lot of my fellow super leftist uh, Christian uh, theologian people that I either hear their podcasts or get to have great conversations with um, or just follow on social media, I'm seeing more and more. So maybe can you tell us a bit about how process theology plays into this um, and I'll maybe I'll kind of push into some areas. Yeah, so process theology was actually, uh, I was introduced to it when I was an undergrad around the same time I was kind of finding my way to feminist and liberation theology. And a very simple explanation would be it understand rather than seeing God as a unchanging being that exists outside of the world and looks down upon it, uh, process theology makes the claim that God is actually the world itself. And some will also say is larger than the world and changes and grows and learns as we all together change and grow and learn. And that when we inflict pain on each other, on the world, uh, on the earth, we are inflicting pain on the body of God. And when we lift up and celebrate each other and love each other, we are celebrating and loving the body of God. When we work with indigenous communities to uh, retain biodiversity and undo the damages of uh, capitalist incurred climate change, we're healing the body of God together. And in the context of connecting that to liberation theology and the idea of communism, God, if God is the totality of all things and God is always in change, that connects to the process of liberation because liberation is a process. Right. There is no point in which everything is ultimately free. It's always something that we're going to have to be working on. We can't, there won't become a point where, well, that's it, we're done. There are no more classes, there are no more states. Everybody's living together in harmony because you can't get complacent about those things. You have to continue those conversations 
even when you were in a world that you could truthfully call the kingdom of God or the beloved community, it's still a process. You still have to love each other. You can't stop loving each other just because uh, uh, there's no more slavery uh, and everybody gets a fair wage. Um, that's all the more reason to keep loving each other because it's easier now. Yeah, and I think I think there's, and this is speaking as someone that that probably wouldn't go as far <laughs> into process theology and maybe catch up with me in a few years and maybe I'll change my mind. Maybe and maybe that would prove process theology uh, once again. <laughs> Who knows? But I'm. I, I'm, I see the utility, I suppose, in that. And I see the, the fact that typically when we talk about theology kind of in a more traditional framing, the, the impetus to enact change is oftentimes not there, um, not up and running. There is a deference to traditional theology of which I'm a big proponent to yeah. a static, um, even the, the kind of pictures of heaven um, do, there's always a question of, well, isn't that really static? And there's very little um, historic, historically there is some, um, but there's very little in our popular kind of understanding of even heaven that includes a new earth um, that <laughs> needs care and that needs um, that needs our thought and and work. Um, so yeah, so there. I think I think I, the the way that you just framed process theology in this and being part and parcel of kind of how you're how how you've kind of constructed this coming together of Christianity and communism. I think I can see how that's really helpful. I can see how that is something that can animate towards a constant need to change things here and now because we have a responsibility, not just later, not just now, but both. It's yeah. kind of an already and not yet. It's a, yeah, absolutely. Like I, would kind of call myself agnostic when it comes to like thoughts about like the afterlife because I can't know I can't say for sure yeah I know that like most many scholars believe that language of heaven and hell in the uh Hebrew and Christian texts was metaphorical and allegorical or referred to places that existed physically Gehenna um yeah. like Gehenna mm -hmm. um but so like sometimes I like to transfer those concepts to like what the projects that we're doing here on earth, the kingdom of heaven being something that we're trying to build, hell being, well, it's like sometimes Jesus talked about hell as like a refining fire where uh, you're purified. So maybe that's a place where people who have harmed other people can learn how to not do that. Uh, maybe hell is a concentration camp. Um, and it's not a place where you go to be punished. It is a creation that humanity has in, uh, forced on itself and on others. I There are a lot of aspects of traditional theology that I think I connect to with process theology because I don't take every aspect of process theology uh, wholesale. Um, it didn't fall from the, the really, sky either? <laughs> no, like the big selling point for me is as someone who's interested in the liberate, the full complete mm -hmm. liberation of not just the uh, human species, but every species and of the earth itself, um, I have to understand like, what are these stories in the Bible where it talks about God liberating uh, Hebrew slaves in Egypt or uh, uh, the uh, so many of the other, or like coming to Hagar in the wilderness to uh, point her to where she can get water for her son and tell her mm. that she is going to survive. 
uh, or Jesus sending his son Jesus to challenge the might of the Roman Empire. Like, what are these? How do these relate to what we go on today when we don't see uh, God tear down the United States for uh, being a ch empire built on chattel slavery? Uh, how do we reconcile these things? And for me, that's part of this, like, okay, we have to, I have to look at and see is like, there's poetry, there's myth, there's, there's some history uh, found in these Hebrew and Christian texts. Uh, but how much of that was meant to be taken and understood is like, this is literal. Like, I see the wrath of God is not fire raining down from heaven, but it's when uh, righteously angry people uh, target a police station and burn it to the ground because of the ways that uh, Black communities have been systemically uh, corralled and murdered by the justice system in this country. Uh, and the love of God is we come together as a community and we make sure everybody has access to toilet paper, to masks, to water. Uh, uh, the love of God is manifest when we, uh, by emergency workers and frontline workers uh, who are sacrificing their time and energy to make sure that people are safe and healthy during a pandemic. Uh, and so that's where I see those things manifest through the power of the Holy Spirit moving through the people. Um, because I, I don't see it anywhere else. I don't see the hand of God literally coming down <laughs> yeah. and uh, scooping people out of bondage. So I have to look at like, where do I see something that could be called that? And that is part of why process appeals to me because it says that the power of God is in the people. It's in what we do together collectively. Uh, the power of God comes through the pull, the call we feel towards justice that tells us this is the right thing to do, to care for and love our friends and our family and our neighbors. So James Cohn has some really interesting work. I believe it's in God of the Oppressed um, where he discusses the um, the danger of any, this kind of runs all through his work. So I guess I can, it's probably there and it's everywhere else, but the danger of over-spiritualizing um, and and kind of how that has, how, how kind of a view of heaven was always implemented for folks in slavery, um, for folks all through American history to say, your home is not here, your home is somewhere far away in heaven, you, your rights will, your wrongs will be righted there, justice will be waiting for you there, instead of saying justice needs to be here and now, particularly by the people that claim Christianity. So instead of having this ongoing conversation about what it means to be a Christian nationalist and how folks want to storm the Capitol to keep a millionaire or billionaire in charge of uh, things, you know, instead of that conversation being the constant chatter, you know, the conversation could be how can we put the tools in the hands of people that need liberation here um, in our city streets, the 500,000 people that live and sleep on the streets from day to day, um, whether it is those frontline workers that you mentioned that have been out in the pandemic, um, perhaps without any pay raises or for with very short temporary pay raises that uh, enormous corporations can tout how good they've been to their people and then take them away after a few months. Um, so yeah, so there is, there is always a weaponization of particularly heaven and hell <laughs> to say later, later is when justice will be served. Don't seek it now. So I think 
that's particularly what is hitting me about what you're saying is, yeah, our need to embrace a theology that can move us in the direction of coming alongside people now um, because justice matters now for people. Yeah, and uh, so because working class Christianity is kind of like, it's an ideas project. It doesn't have a on the ground component right now. Um, it is important that like we're engaged in like actual like on the ground organizing work. And I organize with a community group here in New York City, the Justice Center in El Barrio. And for the past, almost the past year, we've been working with uh, the People's Church in Harlem, which is a congregation that in the 1970s uh, was taken over by the uh, socialist group, the Young Lords, who wanted to use it to run a breakfast program. The church had initially said no, and they eventually uh, took it over at for a short period of time and ran a community food program out of it. Uh, and as a result, it was renamed People's Church. Uh, we've been working with them to do similar work, the feeding people every week, making sure they have uh, running a variety of other uh, community relief programs out of the church uh, with, the, uh, with the pastor who herself is a proponent of liberation theology, which is mm -hmm. really great. Um, and so that's, that's an example of like, this stuff has to also be practical. When we talk about theology, it can't just be talking about God. It has to be like, what are we doing to work about God? And how does our talk influence our work? And yeah, well, that's great. So I have two more two more questions for you uh, before we yeah. before we have to part our time. So first question is, what are you working on now that we can that we can follow? I know uh, we will definitely put a link to Working Class Christianity, the Substack there. Olivia's work is featured prominently as well it should be. So y'all should check that out. But uh, maybe in addition to that, or do you have some pieces coming up there that you wanna uh, get us aware of? Yeah, the piece I'm working on right now is uh, on revolutionary love. It's a follow-up to one I put out last year. Last year, I put out a piece talking about what it means to have revolutionary love for the oppressed and I uh, put that in the context of uh, Jesus's call in the, towards the end of the book of John to love each other as I have loved you, uh, saying like the greatest love is this to lay down your life for your friends and talking about what that meant uh, in the context of being oppressed. And the one I'm working on now kind of builds on that to talk about like what it actually means to love other oppressed people. Um, how do we love each other and uh that's going to be the second of a three-part maybe maybe three-part series the next one is going to talk about like what does it mean to love the oppressor hmm. um and so keep an eye out for that piece revolutionary love part two should be coming out it might be out by the time you hear this episode <laughs> <laughs> um and other stuff, I mentioned the some of the practical work I'm engaged with right now. Um, I sometimes also work on some sermons that might be able to be heard uh, through the Christians for Socialism group on Facebook. I'm beginning the process of trying to find like a local church community to do some like organizing around the idea of what does it mean to have worship that is centered around service uh, to the people and not just a gathering. I think to, to end this conversation, you had mentioned um, that you had a poem that kind of brought together all of this. And I wonder <laughs> if you could take us out with your poem. Yeah, I would absolutely love to. Uh, so it has two titles, uh, The Nazarene, uh, or A Tribute to the First Kami. You ask if we should pay taxes. I say, here's your money, take it back again. 
return to the people what you stole from them. If you want to follow me, you got to commit your wealth to the cause, to the poor. Otherwise, you are my enemy. And to you, my fellow poor, I have more than blessings. Walk forth, you who are hungry, tired, who desire justice. It will be yours. You will eat and sleep and get what is rightfully yours. When the mighty are overthrown, the high places are made low. You will inherit the earth. While the rich received their reward at birth, wallowing in their fame and glory, calling themselves sons and daughters of God, and asking why they can't have peace. Why can't we live uh, together and love each other? I say, you want peace without loving your neighbor. You want love without loving yourself. You want justice without love of God. I'm not here for peace. I bring a sword to tear down their temple to all-powerful gold because you can't serve both God and me. They perch in their universities wondering which came first, the chicken or the egg. I wonder how their great wealth can exist amongst all this poverty. I proclaim knowledge to the unknowing, freedom to the prisoners, good news to the poor, that the oppressed will be set free. Who am I? I am the Nazarene. Olivia Sanel, thank you so much for joining us today on Public Theologians. Um, thank you so much for having me, Casey. It was wonderful to be here. And that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Our theme music is by Small Fish. Our art is by Phil Nellis. We would love it if you'd share this episode, if you'd get a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash Hobbs, where you can support us for as little as $3 per month. Now go in peace to love and serve.